This is Sam. This is Paul. This is Justin. And this is Southpaw. So today on the podcast, we'll be talking about two different types of combat sports. Canelo Alvarez versus Daniel Jacobs for the middleweight unification title. And we'll also be discussing Al Ayaquinta versus Donald Cerrone on UFC Fight Night. And because of schedule conflicts, we'll have Paul as usual, but he'll only be here for the first part of the show and he'll be breaking down the Alvarez versus Jacobs fight. And then he has to leave because he'll be taking his sister to a K-pop concert, which is actually <laughs> much more important than this. Uh, if you follow K-pop at all, it's a group called BTS, which is hugely popular right now. So I don't blame him. And then joining me later in the show will be MMA fighter Justin Osborne to help us study Al Iaquinta versus Donald Cerrone. So Paul, Alvarez versus Jacobs. What did you make of this fight? I thought for once, the boxing gods did us a favor and put together a matchup that made sense for the fans, for the title, as well as the boxers themselves. Canelo is reigned consensus number one middleweight in the world with Triple G at number two and Danny Jacobs at number three. With Triple G and Canelo having fought twice already, it made sense for Danny Jacobs to be next in line after Canelo beat Rocky. And in a weird twist, Canelo usually only fights twice a year, once in May and once in September for Cinco de Mayo and Mexican Independence Day, respectively. Now, he recently broke that tradition by fighting Rocky Fielding in December, and it was to celebrate the launch of Zone's contract with him. Now, no one expected that fight to go long, and it didn't. It was essentially a beatdown in Madison Square Garden to kick off his record-breaking five-year, $365 million deal. And so far, Canelo seems to be the best-paid boxer out of that deal. Now, he's Golden Boy's prize commodity, and Oscar De La Hoya knows it. He's been groomed as the next De La Hoya, but he doesn't quite have the same charm or story. And his lack of clear English-speaking abilities also hurts him. With De La Hoya, you had the story of a kid who grew up in East LA and he promised his dying mother an Olympic gold medal on her deathbed, and he won. Now, Solo or Canelo, as more people know him, doesn't quite have that same story, but his skill... His charisma and his looks have catapulted him up to the top of the middleweight ranks. Now, Danny Jacobs, also known as the Miracle Man, was being brought in to fight Alvarez based on the fact that other than being ranked number three, there weren't a lot of other fighters that the zone could negotiate quickly enough for the May deadline. So when they were slated to fight, a lot of pundits thought, you know, Jacobs has won his last three fights. Canelo usually does well in May, especially if they fight in Vegas on the judges' scorecards. 
So this should be a good fight. And it more or less was. Canelo showed why he's a champion. He had good slick movements, good defensive posturing. And Jacobs is always tough and he'll always give you a good fight. And I think a lot of people were made aware of his abilities when Jacobs fought Triple G and he was the first fighter to take Triple G to a decision. And despite suffering a knockdown in his fight with Triple G, a lot of people thought Jacobs just enough to win or at the very least scored a draw. But with that big money fight between Triple G and Canelo looming, there was no way they were going to give Jacobs that fight. So, Paul, let's get into the fight itself. So the fight itself was competitive. And despite what you might have heard specifically from the commentary team, it wasn't a wash for Canelo. So especially in the beginning rounds when both fighters were feeling each other out, Canelo does a good job of landing good body punches, making you more aware. And he establishes a defensive rhythm where it makes it harder for you to come forward with aggression. So in the beginning, Canelo was doing well with his movements, body punches, and jabs. And Jacobs was trying to figure out how much of Canelo's power can I take? He saw how much he would hurt Triple G with it. And having fought Triple G, he knows he's no joke. And once he figured out that, oh, I can take a lot of these punches and keep moving forward, it might have already been too late. Did you feel like the commentary team was really biased towards Canelo? I think that's an understatement because at no point did they really give Jacobs's due. Because these are the zone commentators, right? And Canelo is the zone fighter. So do you think a lot of it is that kind of the zone fighter bias? I believe so. But it also doesn't help when you make one guy seem so dominant. Then sometimes the audience might question, then why is he even fighting this person? Because at least if you build up both fighters, it's going to make Canelo shining moments even more emphatic. But because you made it seem like he's dominating the entire fight, if the judges scored a lot closer, you might think, how is that possible? I thought he dominated the entire fight. He didn't win. A, he didn't lose a single round. Yeah, I thought Canelo won this fight, but the commentators were like riding his nuts. <laughs> it was too like at the end. After the fight, I think Brian Kenny was saying how he thought Canelo was the best fighter right now of this era. And it's like, what about Terrence Crawford? What about Vasyl Lomachenko, you know? Of the era is a huge statement to make, and I don't think one that he could back up. So if we were to ignore some of the bias commentating, what were some of the things that Jacobs did well? I thought when Jacobs would switch stances and go to Southpaw, he gave Canelo a lot of trouble, as well as his overall aggression, because Canelo prides himself on good defensive movement, both head, body, and feet. But when there's too much overpressure, you can only react to so many things, and then you will eventually get caught. And one of the things that I wish Danny Jacobs did more of was what he did in the later rounds early on in the fight. I understand you want to feel the round out. You want to make sure that you're not walking into something set up and you get hurt. But I think that if he was to establish aggression early, he would switch stances a lot more frequently. He would have done enough to either win the fight outright or win a split decision on the judge's scorecard. Yeah, that was the other weird thing where I did think he had a lot of his best moments when he was in Southpaw. But the commentators were like watching a different fight because they kept saying like, no, he shouldn't switch the Southpaw. It's not working for him. Did you think that was a little odd? Because he was having a lot of his best moments from Southpaw. 
it's almost like Bizarro World, where whatever the <laughs> commentator said, I just took that as, oh, it looks like Jacobs might be doing something right. Even when Jacobs was landing or he hit Canelo flush with body shots, the announcing team would say quiet. And then after that, it's like, yeah, that was a good punch by Jacobs. I think because they keep thinking about the Triple G fight where Triple G dropped him during the Southpaw either stance switch or from Jacobs being a Southpaw. So they remember that. But Canelo didn't take advantage of that like Triple G did. Not only that, but it was a flash knockdown. And then Danny Jacobs got up when he fought Triple G. But I think with Canelo, he was also very aware that Danny Jacobs can turn on the aggression and he didn't want to lose in front of Vegas crowd. And he knows that if the rounds are close enough, he's going to win. But if he gets caught and hurt, that's no longer the case. As a switch hitter, what I found interesting about Daniel Jacobs is unlike switch hitters in the past, like uh, Marvin Hagler or somebody like Terrence Crawford from today, Danny Jacobs kind of starts out the fight in one stance and kind of mostly sticks to that. Whereas the other guys would be switching stances in the middle of the round. And I thought that was interesting because his stance switching just became so predictable. This round, I come out southpaw. The next round, I come out orthodox. I wonder if he's not comfortable enough with stance switching that he could just do it seamlessly in the round. I agree. And it might also be a fact that he doesn't feel comfortable doing it with such a good defensive fighter. Because if a fighter is going to be more aggressive and come towards him, he might be able to set up more traps. But if he's in the midst of stand switching and he gets caught clean, he has no natural defense to it. Now, what ultimately won Canelo the fight? Ultimately, it was his defensive savvy and enough ring awareness to know I'm down. Jacobs is getting the lead. I'm going to stifle it and I'm going to steal the round with either good body punches, good movement. And at no point did Canelo looked like he was lost. There were moments where he struggled, especially when Jacobs went southpaw. But he knew that, okay, he's going to switch back and then I'll reclaim the rounds. Or even if I'm losing this combination, I'll be able to come back. Since we mostly cover MMA, what's interesting to me is looking at boxing and studying it. There are things that happen in MMA that you rarely see in boxing, which is in really high-level boxing, if you're defensive, you rarely just run straight backwards from punches. And if you do, which sometimes happens, you do have to kind of strafe backwards, but you immediately turn the corner and circle. Whereas in MMA, it's more common the other way where you just start running straight backwards and that's it. You're absolutely right. And one of the standout examples in MMA is Max Holloway. He does a good job of taking that disciplined approach of when he goes back he never takes more than a couple steps back without pivoting off to a side. And one of my favorite boxers that does a good job of pivoting in order to stay defensively savvy is Miguel Cotto. He'll move a couple directions one way and then pivot off another. And it keeps you guessing. He did a good job against Canelo actually doing this. And Canelo just looks so much bigger. And Cotto was definitely undersized. There was definitely also a speed difference in this fight where 
I was surprised how much faster Canelo was compared to Daniel Jacobs, especially since Canelo is bulking up. So a lot of times when people start bulking up, they slow down. And if you compare Canelo to previous middleweight champions of the past, like a Bernard Hopkins, like a James Tony or a Roy Jones, Canelo is pretty small compared to the champions of the past. So he's kind of beefed up, yet he's still fast. Canelo reminds me a lot of fighters who might not be tall, but they make up a lot of their weight in their legs. And Canelo did the right thing by taking time in moving up. Now, granted, people gave him shit because he wouldn't fight Triple G in time and he took his sweet, sweet time doing so. But it gave him the opportunity to get to the right size without being slow. We see someone like Max Holloway when he moved up to 155 to fight Dustin Poirier. He looked more or less the same physique-wise, but his speed, his reflexes, all those things weren't there that he has at featherweight. So Canelo actually took the time to see, okay, if I'm going to move up to middleweight, and it's far less of a weight discrepancy in boxing. He realized if I'm going to take shots flush from guys that are bigger, I'm going to need to make sure I have all my bearings with me. I need to make sure my legs are heavy so when I brace for those shots, I could take them. I need to start focusing much more on body punches so that way I can slow these guys down when I do connect. So his team does a good job. They know what they're doing and they're buying their time. Also, I'm really impressed with Canelo's ability to improve like from his amateur days where there's people he lost to that should never be able to beat him ever again. And then to his early pro days, to his fight with Floyd. And then from there, how much he improved. Then you even look at his first fight with Triple G. Then the improvements he made in a second fight. And then from that second fight with Triple G to his later fights and this fight, he's improved again. I'm glad you brought up Floyd Mayweather because even though he gets shit on, rightfully so, as a human being, he recognized early on that he should fight Canelo then and there before Canelo gets better. Because if you see a fighter improving at such speed, you want to take care of them in the early stages before they become a threat down the line. And Floyd did a masterful job of breaking apart Canelo round by round, piece by piece. And instead of retreating back and saying, well, it didn't work because of Floyd, Canelo took a lot of those lessons and improved himself. He got much better defensively. He learned how to pick his shots and he learned how to throw in combinations because he realized if I throw one or two punches against Floyd, I'm never going to hit him. But if I throw in combinations, if I work the body where he can't move as quickly, this will probably pay off in the later rounds. With Jacobs, his uh, corner really gave him good advice in the later half of the fight where he was telling him, to step, step, fire, step, step, fire. Because what he was doing was he would step and then fire and then wait. And he wouldn't keep penetrating. And when he finally started listening to his coach's advice, that's when he started taking over the rest of the fight. But that was a little too late. At the beginning, it was kind of like they were feeling out. And then Canelo really figured out Jacobs. And Jacobs was waiting way too long. And by the time that Jacobs was doing that step, step, fire, really penetrating and following up after the jab because what really lost him a lot of the rounds was he would just jab and then allow Canelo to take over after the jab. When he started jabbing and then following up with more shots, which is what Triple G did really well, then he started taking back some of these rounds. But I think 
his coach said that and it took like two more rounds for him to really start listening. I agree. And it's unfortunate because especially with the fighter like Canelo, where they're defensively savvy, smart aggression works because if you just swarm them, they'll either clinch up or they'll move out. And it's hard for you to figure out, okay, did that work? Did that not? I don't know if that hurt him. But if he listened to his corner early with that step, step fire, it might have frustrated Canelo and then he would have made more mistakes. But that might not be giving Canelo's corner enough credit because they're great at adjusting. They can figure out fighters mid-round. And especially when you've been with the coach for so long, they know you. They know what you're good at. They can tell what you're struggling with. And they can adjust in between the rounds. Now, what did you think about Canelo's head movement? Do you think it was more show or he actually has improved a lot in his head movement and defense? I think Canelo has improved a lot with his head movements, but it's still going to be a work in progress. And it's also something Danny Jacobs prides himself on is being able to hit you with those jabs. And especially when he switches stances, it's going to be difficult for you to be used to one style of head movement. It's like, oh, okay, I have to be. And then you have to adjust all it over again. And it'll be different maybe if Danny Jacobs as you mentioned, did sand switching during the fights and seamlessly, that might have hurt Canelo a lot more. But as soon as Canelo kind of got a sense of like, okay, you're doing this, I'll figure it out. It was much harder for Danny to get past Canelo's defense. And then at the end, really no controversy from the judges. It was pretty much like everybody was like, yeah, finally, that's the, I could agree with those scorecards. Yeah, I was relieved when the scorecards were read. It was 115, 113, 115, 113, 116, 112. I was like, okay, I can live with that. And once that was announced, it was clear that Canelo won the fight. Now, I think CBS Sports had it 114, 114, which is the only score I kind of thought and said, hmm, okay, that's odd. I didn't score it that way, but it's not indefensible because if the writer or the person who scored the fight explained it to me what round they gave to Jacobs instead of Canelo. I would listen. I was like, okay, I disagree, but I can see how you came up with that. I think Canelo is one of those fighters who doesn't win decisions based on volume. He wins based on power. So after the fact, if you look up just the striking metric, the striking metric just doesn't favor Canelo because it doesn't have a way to measure just like how much harder Canelo is hitting. Absolutely. And the way Canelo hits you, it does make you hesitate for that split second. And during that split second, he can either adjust defensively, move around or hit you some or hit you with follow up shots. And that's an intangible that separates good fighters from great fighters. And it reminds me once again of the Max Holloway versus Dustin Poirier fight where Dustin overcame Max's volume with power. A strike isn't equal to another strike. Power overcomes a lot of that. And Canelo's the same way, where maybe you hit him six times and he hits you four times. But those four times, if they're much harder, overcomes those six times. That was the fear that Triple G was able to strike into a lot of his opponents, where once they got in the ring with him and they tasted that power, it changed their game plan. It changed their mindset and it changed what they were willing to exchange in the fight. 
And I thought that was most clearly displayed when Triple G fought Lemieux. And Lemieux figured, well, if I'm going to get knocked out, I might as well go all out. But some of the other fighters might think, okay, let me take a more measured approach and just get beaten later on in the fight. Yeah, Triple G is one of those rare kind of fighters who has power and volume. Is usually one or the other. But actually, I was uh, impressed that Canelo seems to be a fighter now as he's getting older where he's had the power and the counter-striking. Now he's also adding more volume and more leading of the fight. Yeah, and we don't see a big problem in cutting in boxing as we do in MMA. And Canelo looks like he might finally be filling out. As you mentioned, he might not be as big as the Bernard Hopkins or the middleweights of yore. But he has science on his side and modern technology where they can more or less figure out, okay, what is the optimal weight you should be fighting at? What level and what speed should you be at this weight? Oh, you're a little too slow at super middleweight, but at middleweight, it's perfect. And they can adjust accordingly. And he could also make more demands than the past, like weighing in twice. I don't know if he did it for this fight, but Floyd's done that before where he has all kinds of drug testing requirements, hydration test requirements, so he can really level it out if he has the right lawyers. And Floyd will fuck with you leading up to the fight, even at the final hour. He could look at your gloves and be like, you know what? No, I don't like this. Let me feel it. Hell no, we're not fighting in this. Figure it out. Even though he was more or less going to let you fight with those gloves. He just wanted you to know that he's in charge. And if he's not comfortable, the whole thing can get called off at any point. I wish MMA, especially UFC, allowed a little bit more of that leeway that boxing has. Like, just like in boxing, right? Certain fighters like certain kind of gloves. It protects their hands better. It protects their hands from getting broken. I wish UFC would allow fighters to pick their own gloves so long as it was approved by the UFC. But everybody has different styles and different gloves are better for their styles, just like in boxing. And maybe they do better with a different type of MMA glove. I wish they had more leeway in that kind of decision making. Since we're going down this kind of topic, which I enjoy, I am curious as to see what fighters would choose what gloves, what kind of gloves would grapplers choose, what kind of gloves would the heavy strikers choose, and would it benefit I'd say kickboxers to request certain things such as being able to wrap their feet. Because right now I know certain commissions will allow you to tape up your ankles and others will say, no, you can't do that. So can they make that demand? Appreciation for different combat sports also comes with different appreciations for different rules and and, uh, different things that are allowed and not allowed. And so it's a great time for combat sports right now. Like I think over the weekend we had Bellator, we had an ESPN boxing card, we had the Alvarez versus Jacobs fight, and we had a UFC. That's a lot of fights in a day, and uh, and we're going to get more and more of that. It's really a good time in combat sports to be a fan. One of the things that we might hit later on, though, is because there are so many competing organizations in MMA and in boxing, we just don't get to see these kind of really big mega fights where Who would win between these two uh, fighters, whether it's MMA or boxing? Because since they have exclusive contracts with their organizations, they can't fight. And that'll be one of the unfortunate parts. It's tragic because, as you mentioned, it's a great time to be a fan, but it might not be the best time to be a fighter. 
So boxing has problems when it comes to there's not stringent drug testing. So even if you want to be a clean fighter, you're going to more or less be forced to compete with guys that are juice to the gills. But the pay might be completely different because you're allowed to essentially be your own promotion. Anytime Canelo fights, it's under the Golden Boy banner, but he has his own promotional tool behind him. And he's able to negotiate for more money, especially like with this The Zone deal. You would never see, maybe not never, but outside of the Connors or the Rondas, it's hard for a singular fighter to come up with that kind of negotiating power. And MMA, even though you are more likely to see the best fight the best, it's going to be hard for fighters to get their fair share. And even if they land a great sponsorship, they might not ever be able to see that money actualized because the UFC could be like, well, we actually have a deal with fill in the blank sponsor. So you can't wear such and such for your fight. We'll take a break here and then I'll be right back and we'll have Justin Osborne to discuss Al Iaquinta versus Donald Cerrone. So we're back with Justin, the machine Osborne, and he's here to talk to us about Isle Iaquinta versus Donald Cerrone. Just to give you a little background about Justin, he is a professional mixed martial artist training out of Las Vegas with Syndicate MMA. Actually, he has a really interesting story. So after this episode, we're going to be back with Justin in the following episode, and we're going to get into a more detailed talk about how he ended up in mixed martial arts. But for now, Justin, can you just tell us a little bit about your training in Vegas, where you train and who you're training with? So right now I'm training at Syndicate MMA in Las Vegas, like you just said. Um, my professional record is two and one, and I was six and one as an amateur. So the guys I'm mainly training with are Sherard Blackwoodge, um, Natan Levy, uh, Cam Williamson, and uh, David, I forget his last name, uh, AJ Matthews, who fights in uh, Bellator. Um, so uh, a lot of guys that you may uh, not have heard of yet, but in a couple of years, you know, they're going to start making waves in the sport. And that's kind of for the whole team uh, of Syndicate as a whole. It's a lot of up-and-coming guys it's not a lot of established names so it, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting in the next couple of years to see us all start popping up on like ufc bellator contender series or what whatever promotion so the team itself is fairly new but uh your coach john wood has been around the vegas mma scene for a while and he's coached quite a bit of big names already yeah so um he was on one of the earlier seasons of the uh, Ultimate Fighter. He didn't get into the house, but his uh, his MMA career was plagued with like a lot of injuries and things like that. But um, he's also coached uh, Mike Pyle. Um, let's see here, and uh, he's helped like he used to help like Forrest Griffin with like his uh, training camps and stuff. So it's. It's, it was like kind of before Syndicate was like an official uh, team, so to speak. So it's 
he's a, he's got a lot of experience and he has a lot of knowledge in the game. So, uh, I definitely appreciate him letting me come here and represent him and his team. You guys have had, uh, Tom Lawler, Roxanne Badafieri, Khalil Roundtree, and, uh, recently, uh, yeah, Joanne Calderwood. Yeah. And so that's a lot of names. So it's very much an established coach, but also an up and coming team. Absolutely. So let's get right into it. Al Iaquinta versus Donald Cerrone. And a lot of people had picked Al Iaquinta to win this one. Some thought it would be an easy fight. Uh, the odds makers had it for Al Iaquinta, and a lot of the gamblers also had it for Al. Uh, but you had it for um, Donald Cerrone from the beginning. So what did you see that made you think that this was a good stylistic matchup for Donald Cerrone? So... When I looked at this matchup, the fight that immediately uh, came to mind was Donald Cerrone versus uh, Eddie Alvarez from UFC 178. Now, Eddie Alvarez and uh, Ally Quinta, they share some stylistic similarities. They like to carry a very low stance. They like, they're more of a, they both have more of a boxing centric style. I mean, Al throws a little more kicks than uh, Eddie Alvarez, but they both have that like low crouch stance so they can pivot and change direction. Um, but the thing about Al is he's pretty small for 155 and uh, his pressure, the way he, the way he pressures fighters, it isn't very sudden. It's very, it's very kind of more slow and steady wins the race type of pressure. But against a guy like Donald Cerrone, you need to get in his face immediately, early and often. And that's typically at lightweight. Now, his welterweight career, it's a little different, right? But at lightweight, that's typically what has given Cowboy a lot of trouble. Guys like RDA and Pettis that got in his face, kicked the body in particular. That's what was giving Donald problems at lightweight was explosive pressure. And uh, whereas Ally Quinta, like I said, he's more slow and steady, wins the race. And he had to overcome such distance with Cowboy. And the other thing with Cowboy, too, that people haven't been taking notice of, but I have, is that his, his straight punches have been a lot more crisp as he's gone along through his career, right? So you could see that with what was going on with Al was Cerrone just popping the jab. Like the first couple of rounds, he wasn't really finding it right. But then as the fight went on, he was popping the jab and he was nailing the low kicks just like in the Alvarez fight, because that low kind of more boxing type of stance that Al employs, it's good for getting in and out, but it's not good for checking kicks which that in turn is what was leading to Cowboy's success with the low kicks in particular. You're right. Actually, ever since uh, Donald Cerrone linked up with Brandon Gibson, because uh, Donald Cerrone's been with Team Jackson for a while. He's no longer there. But then he's in particular started working a lot with 
Brandon Gibson, and then you started seeing his jab. It started becoming a lot crisper. And then you're right. Uh, I didn't even think about that fight, but against his fight with Eddie Alvarez, he started catching Eddie a lot with those intercepting knees, those front kicks, as Eddie was crouching and trying to storm him. Yeah, and uh, Eddie had a little more success with Donald because he's able to explode. Like Eddie's a lot more explosive with his style than Al is. So that's why he was having a little more success. And don't get me wrong, when when Al exploded into the pocket, right? He didn't take, like, not taking, like, a couple of steps, like, throwing, like, a double jab and getting into the pocket. When he bombed the overhand, left hook, overhand combination in the second round, that's when he was having his success against Cowboy, when he would just bite down on the mouthpiece and go for and go for it. Um but when he you could see that there was like there was like a barrier in between Cowboy and uh Ally Quinta, right? Like even when they weren't engaging, it felt like there was a barrier in between the two. And that was because Donald had was doing a great job with those jabs and with those front kicks of establishing his range and his distance and keeping Ally Quinta at that long kickboxing range. Another thing that probably worked to Donald Cerrone's favor was that Donald is notorious for being a slow starter because he likes to kind of assess his opponent and try to figure him out and learn their patterns. And so sometimes he gets swarmed on, but Al Iaquinta is also a guy who likes to take the first round like he did with Kevin Lee and really figure out his opponent's patterns. And so that actually worked to Donald's favor because once Donald cleared that first and second round and he was still alive and he really got hurt, I think, in round two. That was uh, Al's best chance of putting him away. But after that, it looked like Cerrone had figured out Al better than Al had figured out Cerrone. Absolutely. And the low kicks were just adding up little by little. Like once the first round, nothing, not a lot happened. It was kind of the two of them feeling each other out. And then the second round, you could start seeing Cowboy was getting him, was starting to establish those low kicks. And then the third rounds when he really started coming on with the low kicks and thudding that outside, that outside of the thigh. And you could see um, in the uh, broadcast, there was a giant welt on I Quinta's leg and uh, he wasn't even sitting on his stool when um, he got back to Matt Sarah and Lay- Ray Longo. They made him stand up because if he had sat down, it would have been really difficult for him to get back up from the stool. And then when Donald got back to his corner, you could hear Joe Schilling say, Hey, keep, keep chopping at the leg. He's going to collapse at some point. And I think, like, don't get me wrong, the jab Cowboy landed in the fourth round, it was a stiff jab, but part of that knockdown, too, had to have had to be correlated with the fact that he was chopping down Quinta's leg so much. I think Donald is the only really good kicker he's ever fought. Like, he's fought a lot of good guys, but uh, as far as kickboxers and really good kickers go... He didn't face uh, an Anthony Pettis or a Esten Barbosa or a Donald Cerrone because he's caught the kicks of people like Kevin Lee, right? But Kevin Lee isn't the caliber of kicker as Donald Cerrone, right? 
So this was the first time we actually saw Al Iaquinta getting tested as far as how he reacts to kicks and his kind of crouching, what I would compare it to a Rocky Marciano style, served him well against kind of these other boxer wrestler types. But against the kickboxer type, uh, it kind of fed into all of uh, Donald Cerrone's best moves. Yeah, and that crouch stance like really works well for like defending uh, takedowns like he did against Khabib. But that crouch stance, like I said, in order to check a kick, your your hips have to be op- more opened up, right? So you can you can better lift the leg. But if you're already crouched over like that, in order to check a kick, you have to posture up and then check. Whereas if you have a more like Muay Thai based stance, like Cerrone, you know, he's a little more upright. It's a lot easier because you don't have as much weight into the ground to check the kicks. So up until like round two, part of round three, it was actually pretty competitive. It seemed pretty even up to that point. And then what happened? Then what happened was essentially Donald started not only establishing his distance, but he started popping him with the straight punches which in turn made the low kicks even more effective because um, part of what was giving Iaquinta trouble defensively as well was his nose was busted up, his eye was swollen shut. Uh, I think by the end of the third round, his eye was pretty much screwed. So you're basically trying to... So once you lose one eye, your depth perception is off, right? And we all know that in fighting, distance and angles are so important. And if you have no judge of depth perception, right, you, you can't judge the distance and the angles. So you you also started seeing kind of at the end of the third round, he started going with the inside kick. He kind of would feint the, the right low kick and he'd sweep back over and throw the left inside kick. So he was chopping both sides of that leg. Donald Cerrone was. Yes, Donald Cerrone was. Yes, that's correct. So basically the establishment of, no, we're not going to play at a boxing distance. We're going to play at a kickboxing distance uh, in the second round. And then there's establishment of the range, and then there's implementing that range. The third round is when Donald really started implementing that range. That was the difference between rounds one and two and rounds three, four, and five. I was really impressed at Donald Cerrone's composure because in the past, he has been pulled into these like boxing range uh, punching exchanges where he's gotten hurt before. Whereas with this fight, he really stayed disciplined and, and stuck to his strengths. Yeah, absolutely. There was a few times um, when Donald would kind of, he, he would, he would come forward and he would throw like a, uh, a rear cross, a lead uppercut and a rear cross. But then he would, he would kind of dart, like not exactly like dart out, but he would kind of pivot out after that. He wouldn't stay in that range. Like he was only going to come forward with the punches as Ally Quinta was moving backwards, right? But as soon as he felt like, okay, Al's planted in the ground, okay, I'm going to get out of the way. That was what was serving Al really well in the first two rounds where uh, once Al felt like he was being chased to overcome that reach difference, Al would all of a sudden plant his feet and catch him. And then, like you're saying, in the later rounds, Donald was not falling for that anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I know I'm going to reiterate this point, but the low kicks made it harder 
for Al to close the distance as well because he had no he he had no way to move forward and in an explosive manner like as he kept getting chopped down his footwork got even more plotty and then when he had to switch to southpaw you could you could just tell like right away i think it was in the fourth yeah it was the fourth round he started switching to southpaw and he just he was totally uncomfortable in the southpaw position um so it's really once a kicker like donald kicks you a few times in the leg you're gonna have especially if you have to be the one that's coming forward at times and leading the dance, being the shorter fighter and your leg has already been chopped up, it's just going to, it's going to kill your game plan. Now, do you think it was killing uh, Al Iaquinta's game plan just because he was afraid of the kicks or was it also the kicks itself, like physically limited Al's ability to move? Al Iaquinta is a tough guy. So I don't think he was afraid of the low kicks. It was more so just it took away his physical capability of pushing forward and cutting and things like that. Because you notice, like, even, too, when he shot in for a takedown, there was no burst on his shots for for those takedowns. And Cerrone was, e- like, easily able to thwart those attempts just because he, he didn't have any power in the ground. He couldn't, he couldn't plant his foot and drive because his leg was just torn apart by those kicks. Now, what did you think about those uh, takedown attempts, especially the single leg and the single leg feints, which actually worked really well against Kevin Lee? And I thought that was a Kevin Lee-specific game plan. And then seeing it here again, I was like, oh, okay, maybe this isn't a Kevin Lee-specific game plan. This is just how Al fights now. But he was getting caught a lot early on, but he kept going back to that feint and shooting that, single leg and getting hit and he he insisted on it what did you think about that um i think that that against cowboy because he's so good at timing those intercepting knees as guys come in uh may not have been the best idea so like instead of like instead of like trying to grab the leg maybe just try to level change and come up well actually one thing that ally quinta was having success with speaking of level changes it wasn't when he was grabbing the leg for the single leg. It's when he would just level change and come back up with a hook. I did notice that. You're right. So that was that was the when he was having success because when you go to grab the leg, right, you basically have to be fully committed to a single leg. Like once you go for a single leg, you basically have to have full commitment to that, right? And then after that, like, okay, they defend and then you move on to the next part, right? It can't be like half committed, if that makes sense. Yeah. He has to invest in that feint. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like uh it's kind of like when you have a guy in mount, right? And this is like the most basic like submission combo in mount. Like it's like the first combination attack you learn. When you are pushing the arm down for uh, a key lock, right? You have to be fully committed to that key lock, right? To open up that arm bar, if that makes sense, right? Because if you're just kind of half committed and you're looking for the arm bar, then the other guy knows, okay, he's looking for the arm bar. But if you're fully committed to that key lock, then it makes the other guy panic and be like, oh shit, I got to turn and grab my other arm. And then you get arm barred. Same thing with a single leg, right? So 
I have to be fully committed to that single leg and either A, take him down, or B, if they shuck off my single leg, then I start coming back up top with strikes. And then by round five, Donald Cerrone just started styling on him. Yeah, pretty much. He was starting to kick. It, Joe Schilling said, kick him four times to the outside leg and he will fall down. And at the end of the round, that's pretty much what happened. That last knockdown, I mean, it wasn't necessarily like the most powerful. Of pump. It wasn't even the necessarily the most powerful of, of strikes. It was just like he like any way Ally Quinta could be knocked off balance by a strike. He was going to go down because he had no base. And uh, I was kind of surprised that Cerrone followed him down. I would have just asked him to come back up. But, yeah. Well, Cerrone knew that there was only, what, like 20, 30 seconds left? Yeah. It's kind of like, I I guess it's kind of similar to that. When Sean O'Malley broke his foot, right? And his opponent followed him to the floor instead of asking him to stand back up. Because I was thinking, like... If Donald asked Al to get back up, I don't know if he could have. In which that case, the referee has to stop it. Yeah, that's true. That was a classic move by, uh, I forget his full name. It's Andre Sukanta. Yeah, the Asian sensation. After that fight, he was known as like one of the lowest IQ fighters. <laughs> I'm not saying he actually has low fight IQ, but that became kind of <laughs> what people made fun of him about uh, on Twitter. Yeah. Poor Andre. <laughs> <laughs> Now, with all this said, and it was clear Donald Cerrone victory, Iaquinta had such a reach disadvantage compared to Donald Cerrone. What could he have done then better to overcome that reach disadvantage and win maybe on the scorecards or by knockout? Because at this point, Donald Cerrone's durability is questionable. So for starters, he needed a, he needed more feints, right? Like, if you notice in the fight, there weren't a lot of, like, foot feints and hip feints. He wasn't drawing out any reactions from Cerrone. Nothing like the Kevin Lee fight, right? Where he was feigning like crazy. Yeah, exactly. And level changing like crazy, too. Not enough level changes and not enough feints. Um, that Those are the two major ones, right? And then I would say, too, in the first couple of rounds, he needed to do more. It, it's hard to say because... In fighting, there's so many would'ves, could'ves, and should'ves, right? But those are the two major. Those are the two major things: more feints and more level changes. Let's think about it more abstractly. Let's not talk about these two fighters in general, because a lot of people who listen uh, are kind of uh, listening to learn uh, strategies and tactics for themselves. Because there's a lot of students. So if you're uh, a boxer or a kickboxer and you're fighting somebody with uh, better reach than you, then you're saying, especially for the uh, shorter fighter or the fighter with the shorter reach, feints are so much more important for you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Much more important because the taller guy, right? When you draw a strike from the taller guy, be that a jab or a cross, right? Or even a kick, it takes longer for the taller fighter to get that strike back than it does the shorter fighter. And then with the level changes too, it's not necessarily level change. It could be a, it could be level changes for a takedown or like, for instance, body shots. Cause we know Cerrone does not take body shots very well, especially at 155. 
So that's one thing I was kind of surprised by was the lack of body work by Iaquinta. I was surprised by that also. Because when you're that much shorter than your opponent, right? His distance, so like Ally Quinta's distance to hit Don Cerrone's body is not that much, right? But his distance that he has to come that he has to come up with to hit his head is significantly higher. So maybe perhaps like, okay, faint the jab upstairs and then jab to the body and then overhand right, for example. Or faint, level change. And then come up with the hook like he was doing, like he was doing in the uh, second round. Another thing about uh, fighters who have a reach disadvantage is a lot of times you gotta faint to draw out the taller fighter to attack you first. You have to really learn to be more of a counter fighter because your initial jab or entry strikes are going to be so far away. You got to draw out their attacks first, and then you have to attack them off of that strike. I think a lot of uh, beginner strikers think uh, they don't think about that reach disadvantage when they're thinking about strategies and they just fight as if everybody's the same height and same reach. But you really do have to not only be better at fainting, but also you have to be more of a counter striker. Absolutely. And it's not necessarily just a counter striker in terms of like sitting back, right? That would be like a tall, that would be like more of a taller counter striker, right? Like a Connor. Yeah, yeah. So, like, you want to be an aggressive counter striker. So, uh, an example of an aggressive counter striker would be a guy like, like a TJ Dillashaw, for example, who gets in your face and then he cuts an angle, right? And then he hits you again after cutting that angle, for example, or a Vasily Lomachenko in boxing, right? He comes up in your face, and then he's darting away and the guy throws a punch and then he misses Lomachenko and then Lomachenko hits him another two times. Yeah, actually, uh, the other fight that happened this weekend was Canelo Alvarez versus Daniel Jacobs. And that's what Canelo did was he would lead the dance, but he wouldn't strike. He would just get right in your face, wait for you to hit him, and then he would take over after your jab. Yeah, it's that that's so important. Like, it's small things, right? It's, okay, I'm going to come here, and then I'm either going to dart or pivot offline, right? Depending on what striking sport you're employing, right? So, like, like boxers, right, they can get away with, like, rolling their head way down low and stuff like that. You can do, like, a peekaboo Mike Tyson kind of style, right? But if you're doing MMA or kickboxing, you can't necessarily do that because of the knees and the kicks. And if you're in MMA, right, you can't necessarily like weave your head way down low because of chokes as well. So there's all all these little differences, right? So like uh, a really good if you if you want to watch a good kickboxing pressure fighter, a really good one is Robin Van Roosmalen. Although a lot of the stuff that he does is very kickboxing centric like some of the stuff that he uses doesn't work in mma but some of it does like when he comes in he's very like he he throws like jab cross right and he may he may miss but he'll leap in and left hook to the body right and then he goes low kick for example but then other times when he pressures in he just puts his gloves up on his face and he just like walks straight forward which obviously wouldn't working well i mean it works sometimes in mma i mean it works really good for justin gaethje right 
but there's a lot of stuff that Justin Gaethje does that doesn't work for everybody. You know what? I have noticed also that when an MMA fighter is fighting a southpaw or you have an open stance where you both have, you know, one person's orthodox and one person's southpaw, that kind of high shell walking forward seems to work a lot better when you in those situations versus if you were both orthodox or southpaw, if you just walked up with a high shell. Going to get jabbed to death. Yeah, so it does seem like in MMA, because we're seeing more of those uh, open stance matchups, yeah, the high shell does work again if you're fighting somebody with the opposite stance of yours. Yeah, because it, it takes long. So like that punch, right, that would normally split the guard, that jab that would normally split the guard turns into the cross, and the cross takes... I mean, the cross is going to hurt more, but it also takes longer to get there. So what's going to get there first? Me walking forward or you planting your feet in the ground and throwing the cross, right? It all depends on when I'm walking forward versus when you threw that cross. Whereas like a jab, you can just pop, 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 right? You don't even, you don't even have to stay in the same place, right? But when you throw a cross, right, you, you have to be dug in the ground and throwing it like in the same spot most of the time. There's exceptions, but most of the time you're going to be dug in the ground when you're throwing a cross. I think we're in a weird time in MMA where you see a lot of stance switching, but once people get really better with their jabs and their push kicks, I think a lot of that stance switching is going to go away because that's the reason why you don't see it as much in kickboxing or boxing because the people are either too good with their jabs or too good with their front kick teeps. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I'm, I, well, then again, I, I'm a Southpaw, so I'm not much, I don't switch stances that often. And if I do, it's more for like a defensive purpose, but you see stance switching in MMA and it's working very well because I I think some of it has to do with there's the karate influence also in MMA. So like Steven Thompson, for example, that's a little different, but like for example, another another reason why, you know, stance switching works well in MMA because a lot of guys in MMA, they don't like pivot like a boxer does, for example. Like they kind of like they they take the, like these big circles, for example, like an Edson Barboza. He'll take like a big lap around the cage instead of just pivoting to get out of the way. Right. So if I'm switching stances and kind of blitzing, right. You need to, you need to pivot a little more than you you need to pivot and not so much, um, and not so much like, you know, take a lap around the cage, like a lot of fighters do, if that makes sense, because it's kind of like a bull and a matador type of relationship. That's how I would explain that. Yeah, that's what I mean. I think stance switching isn't the future of MMA, though you do need that for defensive purposes or to mix up the takedowns. But I think once people start getting better with the fundamentals, like the pivots, uh, like the jab, the push kicks, uh, like the uh, sound, like fundamental footwork movements, stance switching won't be nearly as effective as far as uh, creating angles and windows to strike. Yeah, exactly. It's it because the thing about it is, is there's like, uh, there's like eight different ways to throw a jab, you know? So think about that. Like, that's just one punch, right? So in MMA, right, we got to learn not only that, but you're not only learning the punches, but you're learning kicks, knees, elbows, 
uh, take down, takedowns, takedown defense, submissions, blah blah blah. So it's so much on an MMA fighter's plate that where it's it's hard, but it's like where do I invest my time? You know, like do I invest it in? And it all depends on your style and what your strengths and weaknesses are. Do I invest it in? making my jab better or do I need to invest it in making my double leg takedown better? So I think it, I think a lot of it, that like the lack of skill with the jabs and the push kicks is just because there's not enough time to master everything in MMA. Like there's, there's literally not enough time. And by the time you do right, your body is so beaten up from a long career that, I mean, you've mastered everything, but your body's not capable of doing everything anymore, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's why I don't think there will ever be a quintessential MMA style because everything is transitional while like people are investing in one thing, but they're leaving holes in other areas. But you can't be maxed out in everything ever in MMA. That's why you're always going to be seeing these trends because it's really just moving the dial from one area to another. Yeah, because there's infinite styles in MMA. Like, so for example, like in boxing, you have like an outfighter, a swarmer, etc. Right, or or a counter puncher, or whatever. Right, that's just styles within just boxing. Right, and then kickboxing, you have the same those same styles but applied in different ways. Right, so you may have your your Dutch kickboxer or your your tie fighter but even in those sports they have those same those same constructs okay this guy likes to get in your face and pressure this guy is more of a counter fighter this guy likes to circle around the ring and jab and etc right and then you get into wrestling where like wrestling there's there's folk style there's freestyle and there's greco-roman right but even in each of those styles there's still the same constructs like like there's um like Ben Aspirin, for example, he's a counter wrestler. He's not like when you watched his wrestling career, like that funk style wrestling is more to counter guys, right? Um Phil Davis, for example, the reason why his takedowns aren't as good and aren't as good as you would think they are, right? Is because like in college wrestling, he was a defensive wrestler in nature, right? So all these constructs exist in each of the fighting styles of MMA, right? So it's just, you're just stacking all these at once, right? So maybe I'm a, maybe I'm a pressure swarmer type of fighter when it comes to striking, but then maybe in my wrestling is more, uh, maybe I'm more of a counter wrestler. Right. And then if I'm on the ground with my jujitsu or Sambo or whatever, whatever ground martial art you practice, right. Maybe I'm more of a position guy, or maybe I'm like a guy that attacks a lot of submissions, but disregards position. So it's like each, each layer of the, of fighting in MMA has, different constructs so it's it's always so there's no way in mma that that you're going to get one fire that's exactly the same as the other no that's true we've covered a lot in this episode so let's table this here where can people find you okay so you can find me on instagram justin underscore the machine mma on twitter at the machine MMA. I know I haven't been very active on Twitter, but I'm going to start getting more active on Twitter because I kind of have to being a pro fighter. I'm also on Twitch at uh, Justin the Machine. 
Oh yeah, Facebook. It's just Justin Osborne. Cool. And for those of you listeners who are interested in Justin's story, after this episode, we'll bring him back and we'll talk more. So thank you, Justin. Thank you, Sam.